Welcome to Coping with COVID-19. This editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine and Practical Dermatology Magazine is made possible with advertising from Care Credit. This is Episode 6, Aesthetic Practice Status and Prognosis, featuring Drs. Joel Cohen, Michael Gold, Doris Day, Steve Diane, Mark Nestor, Joel Schlesinger, and Amy Taub. We should start out talking about kind of the state of the state, because I think that we have a different uh, selection and group of aesthetic practices. There are purely aesthetic practices. Certainly, Steve, there are uh, plastic surgery practices, facial plastic surgery, and then there are dermatology practices. And the dermatology practices have always traditionally had different weights both for clinical and aesthetic, and they significantly varied for the 2008 uh, recession as well, where a lot of dermatologists uh, stopped doing as many uh, aesthetic procedures because there wasn't the demand and shifted over to a lot more clinical procedures. So I think the first thing is that there's a difference. Everybody is not by any means the same. Um, So there is clearly going to be a spectrum of different practice styles, and it's going to affect how people are going to practice now, a month from now, and six months from now as well. One thing I noticed is that being in New York um, is having been here from 9-11 and during the 2008 crisis, what we're experiencing now is very different because in those instances with the 2008, people did a little bit less, but they tended to drop heavier surgeries than the aesthetic treatments that were non-surgical. So I actually noticed in those times, my aesthetic practice still grew. After 9-11, people were sensed their own mortality and more than anything, they wanted to look better. They wanted to do something, but again, they didn't want to have surgery because they didn't want to take the bigger risk because they felt their mortality. So aesthetics again grew. People wanted to be out and be together. The difference now is that people are afraid to be together. They're afraid to walk in the street if somebody's walking near them. And in New York, which is a super packed, crowded city, I really worry that this is going to be different than anything because of population density and people being afraid to go into a waiting room if other people are sitting in that waiting room. So what I'm thinking about is having a way to do testing in my office. I have a no-touch thermometer so I can check temperatures when people come in. We'll do phone questions to ask if people are sick before they come in. And there's even antibody testing and other testing we can do in the office where we can have an answer in 15 minutes. So we may be able to have something displayed in our office that the people who do come in are in immune to this virus and are not contagious, whether it's the staff or patients who come in to offer it to them as a sense of security. But this is different than anything we've ever been through because the enemy is invisible, it's tiny, and fear is rampant. And fear is based on things you can't see in other people. You know, in Chicago, we were, you know, we were somewhat affected by 9-11, but not as much, I don't think, as the people, obviously, in New York. But in 2008, what we found was that, first of all, we did shift more to medical and that kept us going. Um, So that although we weren't growing as much as we had before, we were having double digit growth every year. Maybe during that time we grew like three or 4%. But what we did find was when that was over, that we attained many new clients or patients that previously were seeing plastic surgeons and felt like it just wasn't the right time or place to have a very big 
procedure. And I think a lot of people at that time switched over to toxins and fillers. I think now what's going to happen is, you know, look at us now. What are we doing? We're sitting around, even though we're not together, we're all looking at each other and we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at ourselves on the screen. I think now more than ever, people are going to care about how they look, especially their face, because they've been looking at it. They've been looking at themselves talk. They're looking at themselves, how they appear. And I don't think any, I think there's been a rush to get Botox because, or toxins, just because they're wearing off and even fillers. But I do think there's maybe going to be less demand, at least for a little while, of bigger procedures and things that will break the skin open or increase the risk of infection. And I totally agree with Doris. If we don't come up with a way to test, our patients may be concerned about coming to the office. Here's the problem though. We are going into untested territory. In 2008, not as many people lost their livelihoods so effectively. This has been an, an out incredibly life-changing experience for probably just about every restaurant, every uh, person who owns a small business has been impacted to some degree. So uh, in 2008, people, people had a scare. There was definitely a scare in, in housing went, went to nothing. And so probably every realtor that you, you had uh, stopped coming to you for a little bit. Now, think of all those uh, people who are out of jobs and won't be on their feet again for quite some time. Even if they want to restart that restaurant, want to restart that, that uh, service that they provided, they're not going to have the capital right away. It's going to be a, a long, tough slog. Additionally, when, what we are going to probably experience when we come back is the incredible backlog of patients who haven't been seen for the last two to three months who want to come in for other medical conditions and are going to be clogging our offices with that while we also, of course, want to see the Botox patients or neurotoxin patients. I think as we all go to reopen and as far as ramping up, I think, A, we have a backlog of skin cancer patients for sure, and we're going to have to prioritize those people in terms of how we handle things. So if somebody has a squamous cell close to the eye or tear duct or on a higher risk site like the lip of the ear, I think those will be priority. But I'm concerned about people actually having insurance when all this is over. So in some cases, staff members have been laid off and not given the opportunity to have a furlough where they can retain their benefits. And then as things gradually happen over time and cosmetics seems to reopen, I think that you know for the most part, people have missed a lot of work already and they may be less willing to do downtime procedures. I think there'll be the exception in the people that may have a major event coming up and somebody's daughter's getting married in the fall and they wanna have laser resurfacing and they plan for that. But I don't think people are gonna be really inclined to miss more work. And furthermore, I think that they're gonna do the less expensive procedures and probably the less expensive procedures that have cross values. So for instance, there was just an article that was published this week about non-ablative fractional lasers um, helping minimize actinic keratosis. That may be actually an area people may want to go because their skin will look better and they may be doing something for the precancers as well. I think that uh, this is a game changer in terms of the economy. 
Um, I think that we are going into a situation where it is totally unknown territory. This is a depression. It's going to be a depression. We're going to have 20, 30% unemployment. It's going to probably, all the good economists are talking about 2021, middle of 2021 until this really starts to come back. And it's going to take a while. And people are going to be scared by this. And I think that the, the psychology of it is even more important than even the reality of the fact that people's 401ks are down 30% and things like that, and many people are out of jobs. I think the fear that this could happen again and they have to stock up, you know, the toilet paper mentality, so to speak, financially is going to be there. I think they're gonna to wanna to spend as little money as possible. It doesn't mean they won't wanna do anything, but spend as little money as possible. I absolutely agree that people are not gonna to wanna to miss work when work comes back, um, you know, there may be a junction point where it would be very interesting where people are going to work more from home, uh, despite the fact that we're open. Uh, and there may be an opportunity there. And I, I've actually had friends come to me and say, hey, I got downtime. Can you do laser resurfacing for me? Because now I don't have to be at work. Nobody has to see me. I'm by myself. And I have to tell them, you know, unless they're very, very close friends, sorry, you know, we're closed, um, you know, and I can't do that now. So there is this, this issue of, you know, the economics and the reality that this is going to be a very big psychological blow uh, across the board. I think we need to take into consideration a couple of things, and that's that it's variabilities. There's variabilities in types of practices. A Durham practice with many associates versus a solo practitioner is a completely different paradigm. Also different regions. New York is a lot different than Butte, Montana. And you're gonna see different parts of the country open up differently. And if you go to some parts of the country right now where there's only like 20, 30 cases, the people are acting much differently than they are in Chicago or New York where everyone's like scared to even like look at each other. So you have to consider that as well. And then to, to all, to Joel and Joel and Mark, your point, yeah, absolutely, people are gonna be different afterwards, how's that gonna affect our practices? I wouldn't be surprised if you see med spas swell, because I think you're gonna see a polarity. You're gonna see the wealthy people who still have their money, who will come to us, there'll be a backlog. But to a lot of practices that, who, who, are, who have patients that are price conscious, I think you're gonna see the med spas explode. There's a lot of regulations that have been relaxed right now. Never before have we seen this in the US. It reminds me of Europe post-World War II, where anyone can do injections. Now we have our HIPAA, HIPAA's been rescinded. Our licenses now, we can practice anywhere. Regulations are being reduced. You might see med spas go crazy being able to inject as these people aren't going to have as much risk anymore. You might see mobile units showing up. So I think you can see a lot of differences. I think the practices that are in Manhattan and LA and Beverly Hills, the small plastic surgery practices that just rely on plastic surgery are really going to be challenged. I, I agree. And I, I agree with that. I think, you, again, we have to look at where you are. And not that I want to sound the Nashville's bad, but not like New York, obviously, and not like Chicago. And um, we're, we're in Miami and, and those areas, but we, we're pretty bad, but we've actually, everybody's listened and paid attention and I can see speaking to friends and talking to other people, they're getting, they're getting antsy. And so, um, you know, when they open, how they open, but we are, I, I'm just this believer that the aesthetic side of our practices are going to be a, are, are not gonna ramp up as fast as people would hope that they're gonna ramp up. And I think that as Mark and, and Joel's have said, the, the Medderm part, we're gonna be fine. Um, I think once that, that we let, but I do think we have to let people know we're open. 
Um, so in the past, none of the group here has ever had to say, oh, um, hey, I take care of acne outside of a study. Um, you know, we, we've always just opened the door and we had, you know, how many patients you want to see. We're going to have to do a job that we've never done since we or haven't done since we started practice. We're going to have to let people know we're here and that, you know, we have that, you know, we're open for medical derm. We're open for skin cancers. Um, we do this kind of stuff on a regular basis. We also, though, have to let the cosmetic patients know that we're open and that we're here and that we're willing to work with them in whatever way you come up with to offer them added value services. Um, you know, use our experience as the, you know, yes, you can go anywhere you want, but we have, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience um, of doing these kind of things. But, you know, we're not going to be, you know, I, I'm looking at this going, okay, I charge $1,000 for this right now. I can't come out of the gates charging $1,000. If you look even at the Great Depression when people really didn't have money, the businesses that survived and thrived are ones that offered great services, great value, great outcome. So, um, so I actually made that my tagline for my website, which just went live last night, by the way. So I think in this time of uncertainty, there's two components. One is people feeling comfortable going out. And two is people feeling comfortable go coming into our offices, mm -hmm. feeling like they're safe when they come in. And that's going to be difficult because if you were seeing 40 or 50 patients in a day, you can't see that volume. So it's not even about, let's say the patients are there and they show up. How are you going to book them now so they feel safe in your office? Are you going to like write post up that you wipe down everything between every single patient? I think that's a level of comfort we have to create in that environment for our patients so they feel comfortable coming in and they feel safe in our offices. Um, Morris, so we, I just want to say we have come up with a plan so far for our office just because it's relatively big. We have like three giant corridors and then we have another office. So we're going to try and limit the number of people that are coming and going in each quarter and the staff. So each staff will be assigned a quarter. So let's say somebody got sick, um, then we could at least quarantine that group as opposed to having to have everybody come home. We may still continue to have them check in from their car. And then we, we probably will be taking temperatures. I don't know if we'll have testing by then. And then what we'll, we have, we actually got somebody to make us cotton masks and they have little, they have like a pocket in them and we're gonna put the, um, what's that paper that you use in the, um, you know, the steam cleaning for the instruments. Well, that has pretty yeah. good. So we're gonna put it in a little pocket and then each person can take their, so like our staff can take them home and longer at night and put another, um, another filter in the middle that's new. Um, so, and I'm also getting plexiglass stands for the front desk so that when people check in and they're talking, because it's hard to talk six feet away from somebody when you're checking them in, so that there's actually a plexiglass uh, stand in between them. We're so thinking, about, so we're thinking about that and putting a glass window on our on our uh, check-in and check-out. We had steadfastly avoided that because, you know, of course, that was the old style. But I think the new style is going back to the old way. The other thing is uh, that we may end up becoming like Applebee's and giving people a little uh, pager that when they're ready, their pager in their in their car or wherever they are <laughs> is going to go off. And they're going to come back in and not use our waiting rooms, but just come in uh, to, to directly into the room. 
I think you can't I want, do that anymore. I want to go to the, the nah. concept of antibody testing that was mentioned already. So first of all, you know, I think it's very early for the antibody testing, and yes. I don't think it can discriminate between somebody who's acutely exposed with IgM versus somebody who's already recovered with IgG. But in the hope that that actually happens over the next several weeks or even couple of months, I think that that will make it easier in terms of who can come back to work, number one, and then number two, which patients can actually come in. There's been so many likely subclinical infections that many people probably have had this. A lot of us were at meetings that were international meetings like IMCAS and came back with these unknown, you know, coughs and things like that. And who knows, you know, who's going to test that they've already had it, but that will surely make it easier in terms of who's coming back. As far as patients wearing masks, I just want to comment on that. For people who have skin cancers in certain areas, like, you know, we're, we're having to make decisions about people who have um, skin cancers and squames near the tear duct or near the alar rim or on the on the lip itself, those are in areas that, that you know, we're not gonna have patients be able to wear a mask during the procedure. So maybe these antibody tests are gonna be important to determine you know, when and, and who we can actually start treating. If you're wearing a mask, it's, it, it's only gonna help, I think for distance things where respiratory droplets can spread, but the virus goes around and through most of the masks that we're wearing. No one's wearing a, getting a fit test for the N95 mask. So it's, it's fine if you're trying to talk to a receptionist, but are we getting a false sense of security from these masks? So, so let me, a couple things. Number one, for us, what we've done is every one of our staff has N95 masks. That's number one. We, that, that, that we have to do for protection of our staff. We're, and we're open for emergencies right now. We're seeing very, very few patients. So for those patients who come in, each one is getting a mask. No, the waiting room is, is closed, et cetera. They're coming right in. You know, are, is that gonna continue in the future? It's not clear. Um, Joel, the problem um, with uh, the issue of the antibody is nobody has any idea now what it indicates. There's uh, data out of uh, South Korea now that even if you're antibody positive and if you've had it a while ago, you still may harbor the virus or you may be reinfected, although not symptomatic, meaning you could be a carrier. Nobody knows what's going on about this, and that's the problem. Um, until we have two things, until we have rapid testing, which my understanding is it's still two or three months away where the Abbott test is going to be available enough places to get uh, uh, significant testing. But that aside, until we have a vaccine, nothing could go back to normal. It's impossible because we're not going to know what's going on or until we have a treatment. By the way, I just ordered a bunch of ivermectin. Um, there's some decent data out of Australia that I think is a good antiviral, and it's cheap enough, and we can still get it on, like, uh, hydro uh, um, hydroxychloroquine. Well, they uh, actually canceled several of our prescriptions for rosacea patients that had papulopostular rosacea, and we ordered ivermectin for them. So uh, get it quickly, because you're pr pretty soon they're not going to allow that. One aspect of the testing is that I just listened to uh, our state epidemiologist who said that currently the 15-minute uh, test is only 70% sensitive, 70%. So there's a 3 in 10 chance that it will be a false uh, negative. And he's, uh, he's very positive on the PCR testing that, of course, takes much longer. But there is a significant amount of uh, people that are false negative here. So the question bodes, what are we gonna do when our patients come in, if they open up May 1st or May 15th? None of this is available. So right. 
again, you know, you have to use, we're going to all have to use our judgments and our, you know, and, and, and wear our own masks and make sure, as Mark said, they're in masks. I mean, I, I'm also open for emergency things. The same thing with Mark. Everybody wears a mask. That brings up another point of patients who come in and let's say they don't have COVID, they're healthy. We've gone through all of that. We have measures. Let's just say all that's in place. Then we do injections and they, they get it. We know that there's a hypercoagulable state. If they've had it, they've recovered. Are they still in that hypercoagulable state, but we just don't know it? And we do an injection. Are they at higher risk of complications immediately after having the infection? So I think that there are some variables around doing filler injections after COVID-19 because of the skin changes and the, the vascularity changes that we see in it. So what does everyone think about that? How much are you worrying about that? I don't think we know enough about this. I, I agree with you. There's some reports of hypercoagulability, but it's, it's all over the place at this point. We really don't know what the story is. I, I also want to be clear. I don't, think, I, I don't think it's realistic to say May 1st, May 15th, we're going to be open. I just don't think that's real, no matter where you are in the country, because I think the places, other places in the country have not uh, had the wave yet. Mark, your governor just came out an hour ago and said he's going to open schools by May 1st, half of them. Yeah, but that's going to change. And the, and the <laughs> districts aren't going to open is the issue. My governor, and then he's going to open your office, Mark. My governor is the second biggest idiot in the country. Yeah. That's the first biggest idiot. But the, the issue is here is you know the 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 nice thing is that our our school districts here aren't opening they they have made it clear they're not opening this uh this semester at all and then you know not until the fall so the bottom line is that it's just not realistic to think if you look at the epidemiology of this and you look at the fact that that as you said we don't have the testing we don't have the antibodies available at all nevertheless widely and we don't have any treatments that we know work it's just nobody is going to be stupid enough to take the risk, okay, to do this, especially for, you know, the things that we do. Uh, and I think what's I think amazing is that it's, it's reading mountains of information every single day. And every day it's like, oh, wait, maybe ivermectin, maybe it's hydroxychloroquine. So I think a lot of these issues about when we opening is not coming down to time, but rather to curing the unknown. So once we recognize that, yeah, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine are prophylactic, they work great, or if you're HLA type, B, or if you're, you know, your blood type is a certain type, you're at higher risk. Once we recognize that, once we reduce mortality in the ICU from 70% to 10%, and we understand the risks and we know the risk, then we're going to open. Just like we get into a car every day, we know there's a risk of a car accident, but we understand the risk. We wear a seatbelt. We don't know this, but I will bet you in two weeks, three weeks, we're going to have a completely different attitude on all of this because who knows, maybe those Israelis will come up with that, uh, that cure that Joel was passing out along one of the threads I was on. It's, you know, maybe they have a cure. They already have a vaccine. They said it's going into testing right now. That's already been tested in the past. You, you don't, we don't know yet. And it's, I think it'll be really interesting to come no, back. Absolutely. I agree with you also, even if they could figure out a way to, like when you get to that point where you might have that cytokine storm, if they could figure out a drug that would actually reduce it or take it away, if you could make the mortality, like you said, go down to much less, so that people wouldn't actually need to go on ventilators. That would be a huge win. I think then people would be more willing to potentially get, like I know I would be okay with it, I just don't wanna die. 
right? So, I mean, if I have to have a flu for two weeks. How many people have died right now? The, the U.S., if you look at the number of the deaths, Dan Siegel 40, will 60, give you 40,000 or so. We're expected to have 80,000 deaths. That doesn't even compare to a lot of other things that happen. So keep in mind, like, I'm not an economist, but we're scientists. And I know Doris and I have talked about this. There's a whole other field of science that has a different angle on this. And they're saying you have 350 million Americans and an economy has been shut down for 100,000 deaths. And if we were in a math situation, an economy class, it'd be a no-brainer. It'd be like, why would you shut that down? Because there's a lot of deaths that are occurring due to this economic crisis that is not, are not being taken account for. Yeah, because the so, deaths wouldn't be 100,000 anymore. You could have many of a million. Say, let's say it's a million. 350 million right. people are going to sacrifice for a million. It's a math problem. I'm, listen, I'm a doctor. I'm like all of you. I want to save every single life. But we have to recognize there's another point to this. So we have to figure out what the risk is. And once we feel comfortable with the risk, we're going to open up. But the biostatistics are very, very difficult for people right now. For the average person watching TV, they simply don't understand that flattening the curve means delaying actual people right. getting this disease until later, potentially yeah. this summer. But if we delay people getting it to the summer, then we may understand these prophylactic treatments. Henry Ford is doing a study right now, a randomized prospective study on hydroxychloroquine given to first responders to see who gets it and who doesn't, number one. Number two, we can look to treatments potentially like remdesivir and other types of things with more significant data. Plus, we can understand these ventilators and the issues of oxygenation much better. So flattening the curve makes a lot of sense from a standpoint of not only saving lives, but now, but saving lives and understanding the disease better. And the economics of it are really difficult to untangle because we don't understand the denominator here. And we have no idea what the actual number is. And every country reports their death differently. If somebody has a comorbid condition, is it heart disease? Is it lung disease? Or is it end-stage renal disease? Or is it COVID? We have no systematic way to report number of deaths. But, and you know, one thing I also heard this morning in, in New York that they're collecting bodies just from people who are dying in their house, and they're not counting them as COVID deaths. I mean, it's very morbid. But also, right. you know, I think... To, to build on what Steve was saying is it really comes down to managing uncertainty. And right now we have so much uncertainty, which is driving things. And when things are this uncertain, then it goes to a lot of things. It goes to faith, it goes to politics, it goes to um, your, your family structure and your, and your finances. But it's not science that we're basing anything on. It's really just random things that, that drive and drive our fears. So once we have that uncertainty contained a little bit more, which I think is going to happen exponentially day by day because more studies are getting published, more data is coming forward, we are starting to understand this better. And as we can put, wrap ourselves around that scientifically in a, in a way that we can define, then people will have structure that they can get back to. And once they have that structure they can get back to, we may ramp up a lot faster than we think. I'm an optimist, so I'm going with that thought. That works for me. But some people live by being pessimistic and say, we're not going to open for a year and a half because we won't have a vaccine until then. That makes no sense. It's just not feasible. We, we, that's not sustainable. So we're, we're going to come up with something. It's a matter of what and when, and it changes literally day by day. Posts that I made yesterday are already irrelevant. I can't even post them because everything is different today. Well, I'm also the, you know me, I'm, I'm the optimist of everything. I, I do think if you're in the market to buy something, <laughs> this is the best time ever. Yeah. I think if you, if you were, if you were car, you could steal them. If, no, but if, well, you, anyway, if, you, if you, if you are in, if you, again, based on your finances and based, I had a conversation with a young dermatologist today who 
was saying, thank God I didn't buy this laser before, you know, the beginning of March. But he's in the market of looking at a device. And so we started talking about it. And he said, yeah, I have a leasing company that I keep talking to. And they're like, whenever I'm ready. And I'm like, you know, the negotiating power that we're going to have as docs, if you're in that market, is going to be amazing. So again, from our side of it, you know, if you're, if you want to, in the aesthetic, if you want to update your aesthetic world, um, now's, a, now's a good time to be thinking about it. When we open and the, the companies reopen, it's gonna be a good time to do this. Obviously, if you wanna stock up on products, skincare is gonna do fine post COVID, okay? We're all gonna be selling skincare. So you need to be looking at your inventories and so forth. But, but the companies- depends on expiration dates. There'll also be, a, there's a market that we can start looking at in our own offices and everyone else's you know, make sure we have everything up to date, ready to go um, as it gets closer. You know, I think, I'm, so that's my optimism part. We're selling a ton of products right now. We have, well, you know, we have a store and we have an online store, but a lot of people in our communities want the stuff. So we started to deliver it. Um, I've got my husband's out there right now delivering like 50 boxes to people's doorsteps and taking a picture of it and sending them a text saying it's there. And we've had, we've, you know, we've been doing sales because of the fact that the companies are selling it to us at a discount. And there's been a big increase, I think, actually. We're doing, we're doing, curbs, we're doing curbside delivery. Yeah. So the, well, the patients well, drive up. And that. A couple of things to that. Number one, there are companies that are going out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael and I talk about this all the time. There are companies that have already been sold to other companies, companies out of business. Reps have been laid off virtually across the board. It's going to be important for us as a, as a group to make sure that when we come back, that companies such as Galderma, Allergan, et cetera, own up to the issue that if it's been three, six months until we've used something, that they will replace products that have expired or close to expiration. And I think that's very, very important. And I think we need to hold their feet to the fire as a group to make sure that happens. Um, and, you know, I think it, it is, we are going to be in the driver's seat, just like the patient is, in terms of making sure that the companies are looking out for our best interest. Yeah. I agree. I think that's true. I think we're going to need to position ourselves, especially in aesthetics, as really looking out for our patient's best interest. And maybe as Doris brought up, the fact that they could potentially have a complication that we can't even have we have no precedent for we should bring that up because that may lead them to not schedule but on the other hand god forbid that something starts to take place and then we have that thought and they are saying well you didn't tell me that um and it's better to be safe than sorry and protect people i'm going to bring up one other thing that i that i'm going to predict and that is that there's going to be a lot of relocation after this or during this so I think that there are going to be a lot of people who will move from the more populated, uh, crowded areas like the uh, New York, LA, and move into less crowded areas. I think there's going to be a lot of focus on self-health, uh, self-care, on just keeping yourself healthy. So there are some uh, things that we can do to uh, go into it, lean into that, rather than uh, find out about it later. So Joel's recruiting. Yeah. So I, yeah, absolutely, Michael. Come on and join me. Um, but 
Yeah, I, do, <laughs> I do feel like it's going to be a change in our practice and whatever we have done before now, we have to rethink and start to consider how we market. The marketing itself will be different. We can't yeah. market in the same manner. There, there are going to be so many facets of what we do and how we do it that are post-COVID-like that we will have to change. Uh, maybe ads that show people are shaking hands. I, I, I saw a movie last night and there was a big crowd and I, it was almost, it made my gut sink when I saw this big crowd of people that were just kind of clamoring together. So I think there's going to be some sensitivity that we have to consider for our ads and for just what we do after this and, uh, crisis. And I think what Dora said is, key, is what Dora said is key. I mean, because I, I hadn't thought of it. Part of our marketing now is going to be, hey, we're going to make sure that you're protected, we're protected. Um, we're going to do everything from a safety view once this is over and once we're up. That, that has to be part of the discussion when we do advertisements and we do marketing. Yeah, We're going to have consensus things, guidelines soon on that, I bet. Some of the things that are going to change uh, are, number one, patients are getting used to doing visits by telehealth. Right. Telehealth. Yeah, telehealth and teleconsults, cosmetic, et cetera, I think is going to become much, much more uh, popular because of a number of things, you know, because of cost, because of patients just not wanting to come in if they don't have to. I also think, you know, talking about what Joel was saying, I've already heard of people uh, relocating for another reason. And after the Great Depression, what happened is that people essentially went back to live for their, with their families uh, because they couldn't afford to live apart. And I think that there are, you know, many, many, many kids that, you know, young adults that are going to be going to live back with their parents because they've lost their jobs. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of economic relocation and combining of family units uh, just because of the economics. I agree. I think Sadly. that's already happening. There's a lot of people yes. in Colorado who actually work in New York. These young kids have just finished graduate school that have come back home because they really didn't have access to anything. So they rented a car, they drove across country, and they're living with their parents right now. And I don't know about the future of what their apartments mean and other types of things mean. I think people will be 40 percent in April did not pay their rent. That is a huge number. Joel, your kids may never leave the house. <laughs> I think that there, the other thing that is, is going to be a, a, a big uh, push that we're going to have to do is to, and on how we market to people. It's, it's different marketing to people in a good economy than marketing to people after they've been through a depression. We, we have to be sensitive. And, you know, right. so for example, if we're marketing some a very expensive procedure, people may actually get mad at us for, for saying, here's this very expensive thing. Like, you know, if you see a luxury car, I don't, I don't know how they're going to market those uber luxury items easily. Steve, I agree with you, Joel. This, this morning I opened up the Wall Street Journal and, you know, they have that mansion section. And I was just like, this is, this, I'm sure it was scheduled way before. This is so toned up. I'm, it made me feel sick looking at this person's mansion and how they were sitting around smugly with these, you know, with all this cameras around on 13 acres. And I was like, I actually got like a little angry and I'm not even, you know, I'm obviously not, you know, struggling right now financially, but, you know, it's just, it's just totally insensitive. Steve, what are the plastics saying? 
so I, I think the, they're back in the same thing like a lot of you are, but there's nowhere near the amount of um, tolerance or, or uh, reserve that Medderm has. You guys are really lucky. I think those of us who do large ticket items in plastic surgery are really going to be in trouble, especially the ones in the, in the areas like Beverly Hills and Manhattan where there's a gluttony of doctors. Because, um, and I think you're going to see price dropping. I think you're going to, and that's, that's unfortunate, but I can't imagine prices aren't going to drop and people are going to be fighting on price. I think there's a group that's really high end. I, I like to put myself in that, that will be okay because we'll still get the patients that, that have money. But if, if you're somewhere in the middle, I think you're really going to struggle right now. And um, I think you'll see a lot of people go back to doing medical type procedures. And so I think there's one other thing that's very interesting for this group. Everybody in this group does uh, clinical studies. And I think the scope of what's happening with clinical studies is changing dramatically. Yeah. I mean, we're doing 90 plus percent of our visits uh, for clinical studies right now through tele. Um, we're calling our patients, we're getting pictures for them, et cetera. Um, we're not but that's, starting all we're, but that's all we're doing, Mark. We're only no, doing no, pictures. We're not starting anybody any new. So Correct. a lot of the studies now are on hold, basically, and are stopped in the middle, both from the standpoint of recruiting new patients for, the, for a lot of the aesthetic trials and even doing re-injections on the aesthetic trials. So it's really going to be interesting to see how this plays out from the aspect of clinical studies. Um, uh, and I'm not really clear right now uh, how this is going to work. The FDA has made it very clear that they understand uh, the changes that are taking place uh, with clinical studies. They are agreeing the fact that people can't come in to do this. So there is going to be a lot of leeway here. But this is going to really affect a lot of companies, especially those companies that have very tight budgets and that have budgeted for a specific clinical study. And now it either has to be redone. Uh, or a lot more money has to be put in. I'm going to make a couple more uh, predictions. Number one, I think that it's going to be very, very challenging for new practitioners and even early in their career practitioners to come back after this. I think there may be some practices that, God forbid, they actually shudder because of this. I think that there's going to be a lot more uh, practices that are multiple uh, person practices because of the safety and numbers type of thing. Uh, I, I also believe, uh, as much as I hate to say it, I think that private equity is going to snap up a lot of practices during this time and get them for pennies on the dollar and people are gonna sell out their soul and you're gonna see a lot more of those uh, practices. And then lastly, I think that telemedicine hopefully will be uh, something that we incorporate into our practices and it could be that uh, we will uh, essentially uh, shed the office when we're uh, at a certain age and just go into telemedicine and take a few calls and say, you know, I got used to this during the COVID crisis and it wasn't so bad and uh, sure, I won't be doing cosmetics, but I'll be making a little bit of uh, you know, money on the side and continuing being a dermatologist or, or a plastic surgeon or whatever. And I think it'll be a, a thing that we do for the future. So I, I, I agree with you. I think it's an opportunity for some people as who are starting up who may have felt that it was hard to break in to now find a way to break in because they may be at a better price point and it, it may be that people will now find them where they were comfortable with their doctor. So I think it's as much of an opportunity as it is a challenge and it's up to us to find that opportunity. Um, in terms of telemedicine, I've done a few but not, not very much of it and I actually don't think it's a very good thing because 
you're not the what you see on the screen isn't the same and when i have somebody live in the office even if it's for acne or eczema or psoriasis being there in real time having the conversation being able to touch them and having that physical interaction is very powerful and i think it would be a real pity and a disservice to our patients even for follow-up for things that we think of as mundane as acne and, and eczema and psoriasis to, to dismiss the value of a face-to-face -face visit. Because part of what we do as physicians and healers is that social interaction as much as it is the medical interaction. It's the art of medicine. And the art of medicine is, is also social. So I hope that it doesn't come down to telemedicine because as Steve was saying, there it is somewhat impersonal and, and it is somewhat lonely for the patient as much as for the doctor. So I hope it doesn't come down I to know, that. I've, done, I've done a fair bit of telemedicine over this past couple of weeks. I've probably seen about 40 patients. And of course it is predicated on the fact that some of them are my long-term patients. So it's kind of like we're greeting each other and saying, hello, how are you doing? It's so great to see you. So from the point of view of like the social aspect, I feel like you can get it. But from the point of view of the, um, the actual screen, I mean, you really can't see very well. The screen resolution is poor. That would have to improve significantly. Obviously, we cannot touch. That's an important thing for many things. And also, we don't have our dermatoscopes. So all those things are huge drawbacks um, to telemedicine unless we can institute a way for people to really learn how to take high resolution photographs and maybe text them in so that we can look at them. But again, they're still stagnant in a two dimensional arena and we cannot see like the three dimensions, very difficult. We're all gonna continue to do skin cancer surgery and do surgery. And I'm really concerned about wound checks and people wanting to do this through telemedicine because obviously we can't feel the wound. We can't feel for induration or fluctuance or elicit any purulence or feel for warmth and tenderness. Those types of things are critically important. So I think that there's always gonna be really these patients that wanna just send us a picture, especially after this. However, things like wound checks, I think we really, really need to see in person. So I, I wanna agree. I think it's better to do it in person. There's absolutely no, no question. question about it. The question is what the, what the people are gonna demand, what society is gonna demand, et cetera, what our colleagues are gonna do. I think there is going to be significantly more. How much more is up to question mark? And obviously it's better to see the patients, but I think telemedicine is here to stay to some degree. It was always here, it's just pushed right in our face now. Um, we're getting we're we're getting a message that it's time for all of us to wrap up. So I'm going to be I the one to tell that. to tell it's time to wrap up. But I, I I'll say thank you to everybody for for modern aesthetics and putting this on, and I think it would be a great idea. Let's try to do this in a few weeks if we're not working. I just agree. To see, just to see where this group is and where the group you know is going.